Episode 67, Napoleon. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. Well, we're still in France. In this episode, we're going to talk about one of the most famous Frenchmen ever, Napoleon Bonaparte. But I should start by pointing out that Napoleon, who will eventually become the emperor of France, was not actually, well, French. He was Corsican. He was born on the island of Corsica, which is an island in the Mediterranean between France and Italy. It's just north of the larger island of of Sardinia. Ethnically, the Corsicans were mostly of Italian descent rather than French. In fact, Napoleon's parents were descended from minor Italian nobility. When Napoleon was born in 1769, Corsica, the island, had just been acquired by France, who bought it from the Genoese Republic, which was led by the city of Genoa. The Corsicans didn't want to be French, and there was a strong Republican movement and also some fighting against the French, but the French basically crushed that movement. Anyway, by the time Napoleon was born, though he was Corsican, the island of Corsica was a French holding, so in that sense he was French. Napoleon was born on the 15th of August, 1769, and his name wasn't originally Napoleon Bonaparte. He was actually named Napoleone Bonaparte. And it wasn't until he started serving in the French army that he started calling himself Napoleon Bonaparte, which was more French and less Italian. Napoleon himself spoke Corsican, Italian, and French, but he apparently always spoke French with a Corsican accent. And having mentioned his name change, I should also mention here the other name that he's known by, Le Petit Caporal, or the Little Corporal. It apparently came from a term that his soldiers called him, a term of affection, because he was willing to fraternize with the enlisted men and occasionally, even as a general, wore a corporal's uniform. But the nickname, Le Petit Corporal, also started a persistent rumor that he was short. He wasn't. He was actually of average height for the time, but because of the nickname and in part because of ongoing English propaganda, which showed him often as being a tiny short man, he was remembered as being short, but he wasn't. But it does show the importance of propaganda and of trying to control the popular narrative of what people think about you as a leader. Let's go, Brandon. When he was nine, Napoleon was enrolled in a military academy on the French mainland. In 1784, when he was 15, he was admitted to the French military college known as the École Militaire, which is in Paris, and he was the first Corsican to be admitted there. He was trained to be an artillery officer. One of the things that the French military was known for back in those days was the excellence of its artillery, both the weapons themselves and the strategy and tactics of the artillery corps. He was stationed in eastern France in 1789 when the French Revolution started, and he went back to Corsica shortly thereafter. In Corsica, he was a supporter of the French Revolution and the French Revolutionary government, and he fought against both Corsican royalists who wanted to bring back the king and Corsicans who wanted to secede from France. For himself, Napoleon was apparently a strong supporter of the ideals of the French Revolution and the French Revolutionary government. And he also was a strong supporter of the Declaration of the Rights of Man. 
1793, he wrote and published a pro-revolutionary, pro-republic pamphlet that came to the attention of Maximilian Robespierre's brother, Augustine. And after this, he was appointed to a position of artillery commander near the town of Toulon, which was held by the British. Napoleon planned a bold assault on a hill by the harbor near Toulon, and after the French captured it, he set up his artillery on the hill, and that forced the British to evacuate the town. This brought him to even more prominence with the Robespierre's, and he was put in command of the artillery of the new French Army of Italy, because Italy was one of those countries that had joined the first coalition, a group of countries that were loosely allied to fight together against France. And it was at this point that Napoleon's career and reputation really began to take off. In April of 1794, as part of the Italian campaign, Napoleon proposed the battle plan at the Battle of Seorgio. And the French army seized a fortress that had held out previously for over two years. This success led Napoleon being given increasing responsibility for planning the battles, and he led the French army on an impressive campaign all across North Italy, fighting mostly against Austrian forces. After soundly defeating the Austrians in every battle, and eventually almost completely annihilating the Austrian army, Napoleon was able to force the Austrians into a peace treaty that was very, very favorable to France, and he negotiated this treaty himself, sort of on his own. The treaty, signed in 1797, gave France a lot of new territory, and it basically ended the war of the First Coalition. After the war, only Great Britain remained hostile to France. Everyone else basically just stopped fighting. And all of this greatly enhanced Napoleon's reputation, both as a general and as a statesman. People all over France saw him as a French national hero, and Napoleon had people in Paris, especially his brother, working to promote that image. You know that famous portrait of Napoleon on a rearing horse, his red cloak billowing out behind him in the wind? That portrait was commissioned as part of his own self-promotional efforts. At this stage, Napoleon had become so well-known that he was the personal military advisor to the Directorate, which was the group that was in charge of France at the time. The Directorate, remember, had replaced the Committee on Public Safety and Robespierre as the de facto rulers of France. This position as an advisor to the Directorate is going to help Napoleon himself rise to additional power, and it's especially going to help him gain a stronger foothold in the power structure of Paris, which is what really mattered. He was a well-known and respected general, but to really gain influence, you had to be able to survive in the chaotic world of Paris politics. Turns out he's good at that, too. One of the things that made him famous in Parisian politics was that there was an uprising in Paris in October of 1795, where a mob of royalists, led by some of the people who were part of the National Guard, gathered together in the streets, and they were threatening the assembly and the directorate where they were meeting. Napoleon was given command of an artillery unit defending the assembly, and as the mob advanced, he had the artillery fire directly into the crowd, which was something that hadn't been done before. The first shots went into the crowd, killing hundreds, but after that, the artillery was just fired over the crowd's head, and the crowd panicked and ran. Now, this was essentially the very last mob action of the revolution, in fact, and after this, the French army more or less maintained order in Paris and throughout the country. This was later described by a Scottish historian as Napoleon giving the crowd a whiff of grape shot. 
A grape shot is a bunch of small balls fired out of a cannon instead of a cannonball. It's sort of like a shotgun rather than a rifle. And it's really deadly at short ranges when fired into a line of soldiers or into a crowd. But Napoleon afterwards was seen as defending the revolution since the crowd were royalists who wanted to bring back the king. And of course, Napoleon played up this image. Besides being an amazing general, which we'll come back to in a minute, Napoleon was also a really, really good politician and a manipulator of other politicians. He had apparently the uncanny ability to see what other men were really after, and he was very able to use this against them or to use other people's wants and ambitions to further his own ends. He was effective in the political intrigues in Paris, and he became more and more popular with the leaders and with the people. He also had a gift for self-promotion. After some time in Paris, Napoleon went back to his troops in Italy, and from there, he sort of unilaterally decided to invade Egypt. It made strategic sense in terms of French policy, because controlling Egypt would mean cutting off Great Britain from some of its Far East holdings, especially India, making it harder to get to, to and from India. And that would weaken France's main enemy, which was, of course, Great Britain. But he didn't really have full authorization to do this from the French government. Despite this, he got the French Navy to sail his army to Egypt, and they landed in Alexandria. Once the army had landed, it began to advance inland, and of course, Napoleon won every battle. But the French fleet, which was anchored near Alexandria, was found by the British fleet under the command of Lord Horatio Nelson. And Lord Nelson was on the water, well, he was Napoleon. He was one of the very best naval strategists ever, and he and the British Navy completely defeated the French Navy there, capturing and sinking nearly all of their ships. So this left Napoleon somewhat landbound. But that didn't slow Napoleon down at all. Napoleon conquered most of Egypt, and along with the army, he had brought with him a lot of French scientists, like almost 300 scientists, who swarmed all over Egypt, both finding historical relics and then also looting them and eventually taking a lot of them back to France. One of the things they found was the Rosetta Stone, which I mentioned all the way back in episode four when we were talking about Egypt and hieroglyphics. The Rosetta Stone has on it a royal proclamation that was written in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics at the top, and then under that in the Demotic script, which is also an ancient Egyptian script, and then below that in ancient Greek. Because the Greek was there alongside the hieroglyphics, scholars were able to decipher for the first time what the hieroglyphics meant. And that was the key to discovering what all the hieroglyphics in Egypt meant. Before that, they had just been sort of lost and no one knew how to read them. Once they had the basics figured out from the Rosetta Stone, they were able to begin translating all the hieroglyphics all over Egypt. So it was a pretty important scientific and linguistic breakthrough. By the way, the Rosetta Stone itself never reached France. It was kept in a museum in Alexandria for a little while, which was eventually captured by the British. And so now, like everything else, it's held in the British Museum in London, where I've seen it. Have you heard this joke? Do you know why the pyramids are in Egypt? It's because they were too heavy for the British to carry back to London. There's a lot of ancient Egyptian history in the Louvre and in the British Museum, mostly because of Napoleon and then the subsequent British conquerors. Like I said, I've seen the Rosetta Stone and it's pretty amazing. The British Museum also has the oldest copy of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which I mentioned all the way back in episode two. The British and the French of the late 1700s and early 1800s were phenomenal looters, all in the name of science, of course. Back in Egypt, Napoleon managed to conquer most of the country without the French fleet, but he 
campaigned some in the Holy Land, and those campaigns were a failure. Retreating back to Egypt, Napoleon tried to consolidate his control there in Egypt, and he stabilized that situation, but he also sent glowing reports of the French successes. There weren't that many, but he sent reports of them anyway, back to Paris. In 1799, he heard that things were getting unstable back in France, so he organized a secret voyage back to France, and he got back there in the middle of 1799 and immediately inserted himself back into French politics. The directorate was growing increasingly unpopular, and there were a lot of competing plans for different men to take power. And as I mentioned last episode, in November of 1799, which was called the 18th of Brumaire by the revolutionary calendar, the French army backed a coup, which installed Napoleon as one of the three consuls who would oversee the transition to a new government. They never actually transitioned out of that, just transitioned into Napoleon being the emperor. In December of 1799, a new constitution was written, which gave Napoleon the title of first consul and a term of 10 years. The constitution also created two new houses, an upper and lower house, sort of like in the United States, that gave the government the appearance of a democracy, but it was, in fact, ruled by the consuls and particularly by Napoleon. The new constitution was voted on in a mandatory national election, meaning that everyone was supposed to vote, and it was supposedly passed by a vote of over 3 million to 1,567. No one takes those numbers seriously, though. Let's go, Brandon. Napoleon and the consulate started reforming French law and institutions all over France. The laws created by the consulate are known as the Napoleonic Code, and they have had an enduring legacy in France and other places around the world. Have you ever been to Louisiana in the United States? Have you ever wondered why they have parishes instead of counties, like every other state in the United States does? It's because that was one of the administrative divisions of the Napoleonic Code, the parish. And that was in place in Louisiana for a while, long enough to take hold, and for now those areas that we call counties in other parts of the United States, to be called still parishes in Louisiana. Many people back in France welcomed the firm leadership of the consulate and Napoleon because people were really weary after years of revolution and mobs. The consulate kept control firmly using the French army, but its reforms were actually helpful and rational, not just purely revolutionary. They made just, fair, and sensible laws. They reformed the entire legal system. They reformed the system of taxation to make it more fair. And they managed to encourage trade both within France and with neighboring countries, in part by revising all the tax and tariff laws to make them more simple and easier to comply with. Part of the success of the consulate was due to Napoleon's rather tireless efforts and his energy. He apparently regularly worked 20-hour days, and he was involved in many of the smaller details of the new government. He was actually quite good at it. He also was, as I said earlier, good at judging men's motives, and he used those motives to his own advantage, and put men loyal to him in positions of power throughout the administration. He was, at this point in his life, he was actually a very good administrator and politician. So thus, at the end of 1799, the French Revolution was over, and France was basically controlled by its first consul, Napoleon. And in a sense, the French Revolution was thus a failure in that it never did create a successful, enduring republic. But by the time Napoleon took power, much of the old feudal structure of France had been completely removed, 
leaving Napoleon sort of a blank slate upon which to write his Napoleonic code and recreate the governing institutions of France. And he did a good job, mostly, like I said, with his administration, at least for a while. So maybe, in order for France to be ready for the enduring reforms of Napoleon, it had to go through the ten years of the French Revolution and the three years of the Reign of Terror. Those ten years of chaos did effectively remove the old French nobility, and maybe that had to happen for there to be any chance of lasting reform taking root. After Napoleon became first consul, and he consolidated his control of the French government, he went back out with the army to take care of some unfinished business. In the spring of 1800, he led the French army back into Italy, which had been reoccupied by the Austrians. But before I explain Napoleon's exploits in Italy and beyond, did you notice what just happened right now? We are in the 1800s. I just mentioned it. In the spring of 1800. Yikes! We started the 1700s back in episode 56, talking about the 13 original English colonies in America. It feels like it's taken quite a while to get through just that 100 years, doesn't it? I posted that episode back in June about six months ago, so we're going to have to pick up the pace a bit. Those are rookie numbers. Anyway, welcome to the 1800s. A lot of stuff is about to happen. I think I said that at the beginning of the 1400s and maybe the 1500s too. I definitely said it at the beginning of the 1700s, but welcome to the 1800s and a lot of stuff is about to happen. Anyway, the beginning of the 1800s has our friend Napoleon back out in the field with his army back in northern Italy. Bonaparte chose a riskier way to get into Italy going through the mountains, much like Hannibal had done with the Romans, but he didn't try to bring elephants. After a long march, the French and Austrian armies finally met in June at the Battle of Marengo. At first, it appeared that the Austrians had won as they forced the French to give ground and retreat a little bit. But Napoleon rode amongst his troops, keeping them in their lines and keeping them in order and keeping them fighting even as they retreated. Then, late in the afternoon, Napoleon's reserves arrived and it completely reversed the flow of the battle. The Austrian army was completely beaten, and in exchange for allowing their remaining troops to leave Italy, Austria signed a treaty that was very, very favorable to France. Napoleon returned to France even more famous than he had been before, and he used his fame and the glory of his new treaty to get the Constitution amended and get himself proclaimed First Consul for Life, basically making him a permanent dictator. This change was ratified in 1802. In 1803, Napoleon, as part of his ongoing work of organizing France and consolidating his power, sold off all the land that France had claimed in continental North America. He sold it to the U.S. government during Thomas Jefferson's time as president for only $15 million, which had to be the best real estate deal since the Dutch had gotten Manhattan for only a handful of beads. We'll obviously come back to Jefferson and what became known as the Louisiana Purchase when we get back to the New World. Part of the reason that Napoleon sold the French holdings in North America was that France didn't really have a good way to support those holdings, in part because the English Navy was just so much stronger than the French Navy. France kept most of its other holdings in the New World, mostly islands in the Caribbean, but Napoleon himself was way more interested in Europe. Well, interested in conquering Europe, I guess I should say. In early 1800, There were a couple of assassination attempts against him, or at least plots, including one that involved one of King Louis XVI's descendants, the Duke of Ingheim. There were still other members of the old ruling Bourbon family living, and there were still a good number of royalists around who wanted to put one of them back on the throne. 
Napoleon had the Duke of Ingheim arrested and then executed, even though he apparently hadn't been part of the plot himself. But this made the other royal families of Europe even more wary of Napoleon, and it eventually led to the formation of the Third Coalition. Napoleon took this opportunity to have himself declared emperor. There was another election in which 99.5% of the population voted to make him emperor. Not sketchy at all, not at all. In December of 1804, he had himself crowned the Emperor of the French. He chose that title rather than Emperor of France because he wanted to sort of preserve the idea that this was an extension of the revolution in some way and that the French were still free. Free, but, you know, with an emperor. Napoleon's coronation took place in Notre Dame, and the Pope presided over the ceremony, but he didn't actually crown Napoleon. Napoleon himself wore a gold laurel wreath, reminiscent of the laurel wreaths that the consuls of Rome would wear when they were given a triumph. A replica of the crown of Charlemagne was handed to Napoleon, and he raised it over his head, but he didn't put it on, again trying to somewhat preserve the idea that he was just a humble citizen. Now, people in France were actually pretty happy about this whole process because they were relieved that someone competent was in charge. And as things had been getting steadily better all over the country, no one complained too much in France that Napoleon had been made into an emperor. And it was after he became emperor that he stopped being referred to as Napoleon Bonaparte, but simply was referred to as Napoleon. Now, outside of France, the third coalition was growing. So Napoleon began creating a large army, which he called the Large Army. Okay, he called it the Grande Armée, which does sound a little bit cooler, and it was Grande. In the end of 1805, Napoleon had the largest army in Europe with over 350,000 men under his command. I should mention that in his time as general, consul, and then emperor, Napoleon also did a lot of rearranging of the army, creating a bunch of independent or interdependent but smaller groups, each of which contained both troops, cavalry, and artillery, and they were all trained to work closely together. The officers of his army were good because Napoleon had been promoting people based on merit rather than like hereditary officers as had been done in France before the revolution. And the army and officers were well-trained, well-disciplined, and the people of the army were fiercely loyal to Napoleon. In September of 1805, Napoleon invaded Bavaria, trying to cut off a large Austrian army before an even larger Russian army could meet up with them. Napoleon marched his huge army around behind the Austrians, covering way more ground than the Austrians thought that he could cover, and he encircled the Austrians from behind. He captured 60,000 soldiers at the cost of just 2,000 French soldiers. He later said of this battle, I have destroyed the Austrian army simply by marching. Napoleon then marched unopposed into Vienna and captured it without a fight. The Russian army and the army of the Holy Roman Empire started to march towards Napoleon from the north. So Napoleon left Vienna and marched to, up to meet them, and the armies met near the town of Austerlitz. Napoleon came up with a dangerous battle plan, feigning retreat and also leaving his right flank dangerously exposed. The coalition army aggressively attacked Napoleon's flank, and he told them to give way. The coalition army, though, in doing this, had weakened its own center, and then one of Napoleon's corps attacked there and shattered the entire coalition line, sent the whole coalition into a panic, and eventually into a full-fledged rout. 
the French pursued and captured thousands of coalition prisoners and completely destroyed those two armies' abilities to make war any further. The stunning and complete victory at Austerlitz made Napoleon even more popular and might have gone to his head a bit. He began to think that he could not be beaten. And, well, he wasn't really wrong. He didn't lose many battles over the course of his career. Maybe you could say he was only firmly and soundly beaten one time. But Austerlitz was always the one that he thought was his most glorious, and it's still studied in terms of strategy and tactics. One famous quote that came from the battle happened when the coalition army abandoned a key high spot in order to sweep around and attack Napoleon's flank. His generals urged him to attack immediately, but Napoleon ordered them to wait, and he said, Never interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake. It's a good quote. After Austerlitz, which Napoleon called his finest battle, there was peace in Europe for about a year, until September of 1806, when the Prussians mobilized to try to take back some land that they had lost to France. Napoleon preemptively invaded, quickly defeated the Prussians, and then he turned towards Russia. In February of 1807, Napoleon and the Russians fought to a draw at the very bloody Battle of Eylau, and then in June, Napoleon completely wiped out the Russian army at the Battle of Friedland. The Russians sued for peace, and the army and Napoleon returned to France. Now, after this, in 1808, Napoleon invaded Spain and Portugal, and after driving out the British troops there, he set his brother Joseph up as the king of Spain. But the French never really gained control of Spain, and for the next four or five years, small Spanish militias continually harassed French troops wherever they found them. The phrase guerrilla warfare comes from this time. Guerrilla sort of means little war in Spanish. The guerrilla war kept a lot of French troops occupied in Spain, and they never really fully controlled the country. This also led to the end of Spanish dominance in South and Central America, though, because there was no effective central government in Spain. So many of the regions in Central and South America began to declare their independence. We'll have to come back to that in another episode as well. In 1812, Napoleon heard about Russian plans to invade French territory and take part of Poland for themselves. So Napoleon pulled together the largest version of the Grand Army yet with almost half a million men, maybe this is the Vinti army, and he marched towards Russia. Apparently, he ignored ongoing advice from several of his generals to not wage war in Russian territory. The first classic blunder is, never get involved in a land war in Asia. But I think what Vizzini really means there is, don't get involved in a land war in Russia. It never seems to go well historically. In June of 1812, he invaded, and in September, the French and Russians had their first major battle outside of Moscow. In that battle, more than 44,000 Russians were killed and more than 35,000 French. This might have been the single bloodiest day of battle in human history up to that time. Napoleon had hoped that this would be the decisive battle, the one that broke the Russians, but the Russian army remained and remained in the field and withdrew back into the wilderness on the east side of Moscow. The Russians burned much of Moscow. So Napoleon and the army entered the city, but they didn't stay long because there wasn't much left. Winter arrived early that year, and Napoleon was also worried about events back in Paris. So he ordered the army to march back to France. Now that's a really, really, really long way. The retreat to France was disastrous for the Grand Army. There was freezing weather, snow, starvation, disease, and desertion. 
Of the nearly half million troops that started the campaign, only about 40,000 returned to France. So Napoleon never lost the battle, but he lost to the Russian winter, it's famously said. The other nations of Europe then banded together in yet another coalition, and they drove Napoleon and his armies back into France. Eventually, in March of 1814, the coalition captured Paris. Napoleon was forced to abdicate from his throne, and he was exiled to the island of Elba in the Mediterranean. But the next year, in 1815, he returned to France, and much of the army rallied back to him. He gathered the army together, and he attacked a joint British and Prussian army near the town of Waterloo. But the British army, led by the Duke of Wellington, withstood all of Napoleon's attacks, and then the Prussian reserves arrived, and they managed to collapse one of Napoleon's flanks and routed the French army. It was one of the few battles that Napoleon lost, and maybe the only one where he was clearly defeated. Napoleon was forced again to abdicate, and this time he was exiled to the small island of St. Helena, far off the African coast in the Atlantic. He never left the island, and he eventually died there in 1821 at the age of 51. He apparently died of stomach cancer, and his last words were, France, my son, the army, although there are some disputes about what he actually said. So why was Napoleon important? Well, as I said, his battle strategies are still studied today. He was very adept at getting his army into places that his enemy didn't expect him, and he was very good at luring an enemy into making a maneuver that would make them vulnerable. He was also very good at changing his plans on the fly. It's said of battle that no plan survives first contact with an enemy, and Napoleon was both very good at setting up his initial plan and then making changes to the plan in the heat of battle. Besides being a very successful general and basically ending the chaos of the French Revolution, Napoleon is also famous for being a very good administrator, at least early in his career when he wasn't off marching with the Grand Army across Europe. He established a very efficient centralized government in France with good administrative structures all over the country, which continued to serve France for many, many years after his death. He set up just and rational law codes, which are still followed in France and some of its colonial holdings around the world. His system was the first one in France that really institutionalized the idea of equality before the law, even though he himself held himself to be above the law in many ways. He also reorganized and rebuilt much of Paris, including upgrading its roads and its sewers. But his lasting contribution to the world is clearly his legacy as a general and conqueror of much of Europe. It will be quite a while, until 1940 or so, until one country conquers as much of Europe as Napoleon did. It will also be quite a while in our podcast until we get to Hitler and Nazi Germany. But Napoleon's conquests did do away with many of the lingering structures of feudal Europe, and his ongoing conquests set in place a lot of the national borders, alliances, and enmities that will continually be troubling Europe and eventually will lead to World War I and then World War II. We'll get there eventually, but join us next episode when we head back across the Atlantic and also back in time just a little bit as we go back to the New World and we look at America under its second president, John Adams.